Hello and welcome to the Penguin Podcast. I'm David Baddiel and this episode I'm joined by journalist, activist and best-selling author Naomi Klein. She's here to talk about her latest book, No Is Not Enough, Defeating the New Shock Politics. Naomi, welcome. Thank you, David. It's great to be with you. You've brought along a number of objects, things that have influenced your life in your writing in various ways. We're going to get to them as we go through. But the first thing I want to say about this book is it seems to be written incredibly quickly, if I can say that. I mean, not in a bad way, not in a it's rushed way. Just I read bits of it and I thought, how has she included, like, James Comey's sacking in this book? It feels like you're writing it in response to events in a way that I can't understand with a published book. How did you do that? Well, we bent space and time. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty good. Yeah. It was kind of fun. I worked with the editor who I've been working with since since I wrote No Logo. I'm, I'm really lucky to work with a, a wonderful Canadian editor named Louise Dennis. Louise and I were the primary collaborators to the extent that she moved into my house. Right. <laughs> and they had never published a book this quickly. And to be honest with you, it takes me five years to write a book. I'm not a fast writer. Mm. This book came out in five months from beginning to publication date. You know, normally you hand in a manuscript and then you get like a little break while your editor is editing the manuscript. But I had to hand this in in stages so that by the time I'd handed in the last part, she'd already edited the first part. So I didn't even get an afternoon off, which I found, given how much golf Trump played while I was writing this book about (laughs) Trump, I mean, it was extremely unfair that he was having a lot more time off. You've done much more work. (laughs) The Donald has and over the same time period. he's president of the United States. I don't yeah. get that because I, I literally didn't have an afternoon yeah. off. Although he's done a lot of tweeting in the same period. Yeah. So he's done some writing, but it's yeah. not as good writing. I'll be honest with but you. But the Comey thing in, that was the last update. Oh, and was it was it? Just, there okay. was just this perfect place where all I needed to do was add in like five words. Okay. Because the argument was already there and he just sort of proved it. But in terms of what that means, the energy that uh, is in this book as a result of that. You know, that speed is a symptom of the energy, and the energy presumably is because you were galvanised by the election of Donald Trump to write this book. Yeah. People kept asking me to write like a new chapter of The Shock Doctrine. Mm. It's a book I published more than 10 years ago because everyone was using this phrase shock to describe Trump. You know, there was the shock election results, and then his people kept describing him as a shock to the system. Uh, His various advisors and and spokespeople, they would brag about how many executive Mm. orders he'd signed in his first week, and they would say, like, well, you don't like it. He's a shock to the system. Mm. That's why we elected him, you know. And the speed with which he was moving, the sort of tsunami of lawmaking, and just the sort of outrageousness of his style was keeping everybody in this destabilized state. But I think the real reason why I wanted to rush it out, I don't think we've seen the worst shocks under Donald Trump. I think what we've seen is just the shock of Trump himself. And in lots of ways, he really shouldn't be shocking because Mm. he is the culmination of so many cultural trends. So one of the things I learned when I was writing The Shock Doctrine is that when we are in a state of shock, it's because there is some sort of a rupture in the narrative that society tells about itself, that any given society tells about itself, about the country it lives in, about the kind of people it is. Mm. And then something happens to sever that narrative. Mm. And that is shock. It's the gap between event and narrative, right? Mm. And that can happen in your personal life, Mm. right? I mean, you think you have a happy marriage and all of a sudden you find out that you don't. So it's not just something bad happening. It's something bad happening that you haven't metabolized in narrative, right? So Trump wasn't a shock to everyone. I mean, many black people in the United States in particular said, well, we have a narrative. Mm. Um, Our understanding of this country is perfectly in line with the election of Donald Trump, you know? 
And I felt like it would be helpful in terms of stabilizing society, because I think when we are in that state, when that gap opens up between event and narrative, that's when we're most vulnerable to, to people taking advantage of us. And it is narrative that keeps us grounded as human beings. We're creatures of narrative. So I just wanted to try to share some analysis that comes mm. out of these 20 years of writing about corporate power and super brands and guys like Donald Trump. Yeah. That would remind us that actually he's not really a shock. He may be horrible, he may be gruesome, mm. but he's a familiar kind of gruesome. Well, let's let's hear a bit from the audiobook because that actually becomes clearer, I think, in this bit where you talk about when he first emerges sort of as a brand and obviously part of your point is that he represents more a brand than a human being. The real breakthrough, however, came when Mark Burnett, head of a reality TV empire, pitched Trump on the idea of The Apprentice. Up until then, Trump had been busy coping with the fallout from his bankruptcies and the impatience of his bankers. Now, out of the blue, he was being offered a chance to leap into the stratosphere of superbrands, those rarefied companies earning their enormous profits primarily by building up their brand meaning and then projecting it hither and yon, liberated from the burden of having to make their own products, or, in Trump's case, build his own buildings. He understood the potential immediately, because the show would put the brightest possible spotlight on his gilded lifestyle, with long, lingering shots of his palatial homes and his luxury jets, it would do wonders to solidify his decades-long mission to equate the name Trump with material success. Before the first episode even aired, he was already lining up deals to license his name for a menswear line. He told the network's publicist that, even if The Apprentice doesn't get the ratings, it's still going to be great for my brand. But it did get ratings impressive ones. And pretty soon he had launched a complete menu of spin-off brands, from Trump Cologne to Trump Water to Trump Eyewear to Trump Mattresses to Trump University. As far as the current president of the United States was concerned, there was no category of product that couldn't be brought into the Trump-branded bubble. Most importantly, with The Apprentice, Trump wasn't paying, as other brands do, to have his brand featured in a hit network TV show, he was getting paid a fortune for priceless free advertising. More than that, his shows collected millions by promoting other brands. In April 2011, for example, The Celebrity Apprentice was paid to promote more products on the air than any other show, 120 product placements in all. This is the mark of a true superbrand. Trump built a brand that contains brand multitudes. And in bringing his children into that show, he even began to breed brands. After you've pulled off a feat like that, what's your next trick? Merge your brand with the ultimate symbol of power and authority. The White House. That's an extract from No Is Not Enough, written by Naomi Klein and read by Britt Marling, is that right? The OA. Who is, what is the OA? I don't actually know what that is. It, the OA is a really great show. You should check yeah, it out. I should, definitely. Yeah. Which Britt stars in and also created. She's right. a great writer. Britt knocked it out of the park, I think, on this. Yeah. She, yeah. And uh, it's, it it's, sounds, her, it's her first audiobook. Um, I actually did think it was you at first, uh, but I, now I can hear it's someone different. She sounds much better than me. I, you, know, you sound great, but I think that she's, she's captured something, it feels to me. So this is your second book with No in the title. And No Logo, which was the book that kind of brought you to public consciousness, was about 
how capitalism, late capitalism, is now no longer about manufacturing things. It's no longer about people who hold the means of production because they don't really produce anything. Production is elsewhere. What they do is just create the idea of, of a brand, of, a, of a, th- a thing that you buy into with your money, but it's not actually a thing that anyone makes. Mm. That's kind of, in a very rough way, yeah. what No Logo was about. And you see Trump as the eventual apogee of this process. Yeah. What I was tracking in No Logo was this phenomenon that was a little bit subtle, right? Because branding isn't new, marketing isn't new. But there was a flip in the order that Mm. happened in the 1990s, where up until the 80s, the major brand name companies in the United States, whether they were selling Tide or Marlboro cigarettes or, you know, Adidas running shoes or whatever it was, they primarily saw themselves as manufacturers Mm. that branded their goods with a logo Mm. to differentiate themselves from competitors in the marketplace and and spent a lot of money on marketing so that consumers would pay a premium for their products. And this stopped working very well. And I think one of the most re-quoted quotes in No Logo is from an advertising executive when he said, consumers are like roaches. You spray them Mm. and spray them and they become immune after a while. Yeah, yeah. So companies like Nike up their game, right? And so instead of seeing themselves as creators of products that they then branded and marketed, they started to see the product itself as the brand. Yeah. And and so they their act of manufacturing, their art of creation was it was in constructing an idea, sort of transcendent idea of belonging. So for Nike it was mm. just do it and the idea of transcendence through sports. Mm. Um for for Starbucks, it was the idea of community, the idea of the third place, not home, not But a key work. element of that, of course, is the actual product is no longer made in the place in which it's being sold. The product is being made elsewhere, in China or wherever it might be. And more than that, the act of producing it is devalued, yes. right? Because as a company, you see your act of production being the creation of image. Mm. But the difference with Trump, right, is that the brands that I focused on in No Logo were these progressive kind of brands that were co-opting ideas actually from the left, mm. right? I mean, you think about Starbucks and the marketing of this idea of community. It was mm. That was appealing because so many communal spaces were cool. eroding. It's a cool yeah. thing. And Apple was marketing yeah. revolution. They were using all the icons yeah. of Possibly emptying the, of any actual revolutionary content, but using the aesthetics. The of aesthetics revolution. and yeah. the promise. And that made these brands a little bit vulnerable to what I, you know, in the 90s we, we used to call culture jamming, right? Mm. Because if a brand is making claims to these progressive values, I mean, if Disney is saying, well, we're this family-friendly brand mm. and, you know, we care about kids. Well, then if you find out that their products and toys are being made in sweatshops in yeah. Haiti by little kids, well, that's a problem for their brand. Mm. So where Trump comes in is he adopted this same model of the hollow brand. The real doorway for him was The Apprentice. Up Mm. until then, he was still more of a traditional real estate company who built actual buildings. That was his business. He just really liked seeing his name Mm. in giant gold letters. That was his thing. I think he still likes that, but yeah. He likes that a lot. Yeah. Yeah. But what The Apprentice did is it gave him this platform to build his brand to the extent that he could then get into the business of just leasing his name to other real estate developers who would then put up the buildings and he would just make the money without any of the risk. I think this is a really important thing because I didn't know that really until I read it in your book that Trump 
after The Apprentice is no longer really a builder. He's not really making any of those buildings himself. He's he just still has leased, a few, yeah. A he, few, but, yeah. but basically he's leasing out the Trump name. Yeah. But I was very interested in that because there's a really interesting idea in your book about, because I think everyone is trying to work out how they can knock Trump off his perch. And your point that you make in this book is it's no good going to the usual ideas of the dignity of the office or anything like that because that is not his brand. No. His brand is macho, rich, power, whatever. And the only way you can destabilise him, therefore, is by saying he's not as rich as he pretends to be or whatever it might be. Or as powerful. Or as powerful. Somebody else is pulling the strings. Yes. So you have to destabilise him from within his brand, as Mm -hmm. it were. Yeah. This is why, you know, he never made these claims to being progressive or revolutionary. Mm. Yeah. The idea of Trump is just absolute power through wealth. That, mm. That's what he's always been selling. Um, that's what he's been selling through his books, his fake university. Mm. And The Apprentice was just like, I'm going to pluck you up from mm. nowhere and take you up this golden elevator in the yeah. sky. And-, and a very one-dimensional idea of winning. Yeah. I think through wealth. Yeah. But that seems and to be what he's obsessed with. Some winning very and- narrow idea of victory. Winning and also causing other people to lose, right? I mean, it's not as much fun to win if you aren't firing people in public, stepping on people on the way up, right? And so, you know, he's perfectly built for the politics of racial division, gender division, because this is what he's always done, is pit people against each other for the Mm. drama. Mm. I mean, the reason the guy is a celebrity is because he cheated on his wife Mm. with Marla Maples and turned his affair into a live-action soap opera in New York papers, right? I mean, he knows how to turn human suffering into profit. That's his thing. That's why his brand's never going to be the dignity of the office, is it? And you're not going to embarrass him by showing that his goods are made in sweatshops because that's just Trump being Trump, you know? Can we just ask about um, some of the things you brought along? Because you've brought along, I can see there, it looks like a no-logo pen. Am I right? No. So this is the only product that I've ever made other than books. Right. Um, When I published No Logo 17 years ago for the book launch, my husband had these made for me to give out as party favors at the book launch. What it is is a No Logo seam ripper. So if you want to take the logos off your clothes, then you can use your No Logo seam ripper. So this is a a true specialty item. I think there's only maybe three of them left in the world. (laughs) Well, maybe they're very valuable. (laughs) Maybe you could sell them. But no, I I brought this just because... um, When I finished writing No Logo, because it took me five years to research and write it, and I tried to write that book in a way that was not judgmental of people who were drawn to the shiny world of marketing, because I'm drawn to it. You know, I get the appeal of these brands. I get the appeal of good marketing, good design. So it was some of the research for No Logo was really fun. I mean, some of it was not. Some of it was very disturbing on the labor practices Mm. side. But I also got to pretend that I was doing work going to shopping malls. And so when I finished it, I developed this kind of brand allergy. Like I had OD'd. So it wasn't that I didn't get the appeal. I had fun while it lasted. But nobody should read that many copies of like advertising (laughs) age and watch that many Super Bowl commercials and all that. So when I finished No Logo, I really did like close the book. I'm no longer writing on marketing. And I didn't. You know, my next book, The Shock Doctrine, was much more sort of serious and economics history, not Mm. the cultural side of it. And same with my work on climate change. But when I started writing this book about Trump, which originally was going to be more about the politics and economics, I realized, well, damn, I have to go back into brand world. Yeah. And so that's and why Trump I, brand world as well. I had to get is... over my brand allergy and get back into Ivanka, yeah. brand Ivanka. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you mentioned climate change there, which I think runs through the book as probably the 
you know, the sense of crisis and emergency that is in the book seems to spring, it springs from a number of things, but maybe primarily from climate change. Let's just hear a bit from the audiobook. In this extract, you're in Australia uh, filming the impact of changing temperatures on the Great Barrier Reef, which has caused a mass bleaching event. We went out on the reef with a team of extraordinarily dedicated marine biologists, all of whom were emotionally shattered by what they had been documenting, and a film crew from The Guardian. We started filming parts of the reef that are still alive, and we managed to get Toma to put on a snorkel. To be honest, I wasn't sure he was going to be able to focus on the coral at all. He had just learned to swim and was wearing floaties. But the scientists were incredibly patient with him, and there were about five solid minutes when he was able to pull it off and have a flash of true wonder. He saw Nemo. He saw a sea cucumber. I think he even saw a sea turtle. These parts of the reef, the ones that are neither bleached nor dead, are only a fraction of the whole. But they are still glorious, a riot of life, of electric-colored coral and fish, sea turtles and sharks swimming by. We didn't take Toma on the boat when we filmed the dead and bleached parts of the reef. And it was a graveyard. It was as if a cosmic switch had been flipped, and suddenly one of the most beautiful places on Earth had been turned into one of the ugliest. The coral bones were covered in a goo of decaying life, a brown goo. You just wanted to get away from there. Our wetsuits stank of death. We chose to film the reef in this state because, for many people, there's a sense that climate change is a distant crisis, that there's still a bit more time to procrastinate before we get serious. We wanted to show that radical changes to our planet, including parts we count on to be brimming with life, are not far off in the future. They're happening right now. And the impacts are enormous, including the fact that roughly one billion people around the world rely on the fish sustained by coral reefs for food and income. And I wanted to try to show the disaster through Toma's eyes, too, because one of the most unjust aspects of climate disruption, and there are many, is that our actions as adults today will have their most severe impact on the lives of generations yet to come as well as kids alive today who are too young to impact policy, kids like Toma and his friends, and their generation the world over. These children have done nothing to create the crisis, but they are the ones who will deal with the most extreme weather, the storms and droughts and fires and rising seas, and all the social and economic stresses that will flow as a result. They are the ones growing up amidst a mass extinction, robbed of so much beauty and so much of the companionship that comes from being surrounded by other life forms. So, actually, you've brought along another object, which I want to relate to this, which is a pair of armbands, or floaties. Do you call, you call them armbands? We call them armbands, yeah. You call, is floaties what you call them? We call them floaties. Okay, that's a nicer word. And, I, yeah, I brought those as a sort of memento of this trip that I describe in the book, taking Toma, my now five-year-old, to the Great Barrier Reef. Um, I was in Australia, and I was there for a combination of reasons, but I also made a short film for The Guardian in Australia about the reef because it was in the midst of this mass bleaching this mass death under the waves mm. that is going on, and now even more of the reef has died since I was there. It's only gotten worse. 90% of the reef has been impacted by bleaching, but now I think about half of it has has just died completely. And they wanted to make a film with me about the reef, and mm. we had this back and forth, and I said, no, I don't want to do that. And then I finally explained to them that the reason I didn't want to do it is because I was determined to go, but I was determined to bring my son mm. and... 
I have never even tweeted a picture of my son. Right. And, I, and I just, I think for me, because I am a target of hate in this world, mm-hmm. um, uh, that I, I want to protect him. And I, you know, I also was raised by political parents. And when I was a kid, I felt pretty manipulated when my mom would bring me to protests and stuff yeah. at a certain point when i was 10 years old i was like that's the last protest yeah. you're dragging me to yeah. you know I, yeah. like i didn't want to be a prop right and so i really struggled with the question of whether or not to make this film about him but i ended up doing it and maybe he'll become like a republican and resent me for it but i've never talked to my son about the climate crisis i mean maybe i should i don't know what age it is appropriate to do this but i feel really really strongly that our duty as parents is to instill in our kids a connection well they already have a connection to nature every kid mm. that you know is at ease in the natural world mm. um but um, to create opportunities for them to deepen that connection, to mm. feel that connection, to feel love of nature. Because I think sometimes we introduce the sense of peril too early. So you associate nature with danger right. at a really, really young age. And some of the first books about nature that a lot of kids will read is a book like The Lorax by Dr. Seuss, which is terrifying. Mm. Um, so I just wanted him to have some of what I experienced as a kid, which is just that sense of complete wonder. You know, he loves the ocean. He was born on the coast of the Pacific Ocean in British Columbia. Mm. He's really connected. Mm. Um, And I wanted him to have that connection. And I was really afraid he wouldn't be able to get the snorkel on. And because he's not, the reason why I brought the floaties is he's not a strong enough swimmer. So Mm. I just thought, well, maybe this is the very last time he'll have this chance. Maybe it'll all be dead, you know? You are looking in this book, I think, for a way of uniting the progressive resistance to Trump and neoliberalism in general uh, around all sorts of issues. But I would say at base... I get a sense that you think climate change is the is the one that the clock is ticking on fastest. Is that correct, do you think? I mean, the thing about climate change is we don't get do-overs on a drowned country, mm. you know? I mean, and we are just up against it in terms of lowering our emissions in time to avert the disappearance of entire nations. It may be too late for that, right? So I don't think climate change is more pressing than the fact that black people are being shot on the streets and in their homes by police in the U.S., I don't think that it is more pressing than the kind of economic warfare that leads to a Grenfell Tower disaster. Um, But it does have a different relationship with time, right? Because if we don't get it together in the next five years, then we lose our opportunity. You know, the, the, that great Martin Luther King Jr. quote, you know, the arc of the universe is long, but it mm. bends towards justice. Mm. You know, with climate change, if we don't bend it like now, mm. we don't get another chance. Mm. Um, mm. And also so, it is something that does affect, in terms of that idea of the umbrella thing that will unite the progressive parties, it is the thing that does affect all of us. I mean, well, yes, there is yeah. an umbrella and it is the Earth's atmosphere and we yes, are all, exactly, all under it. Exactly. We <laughs> yeah. all live on the Earth and whatever our economic situation or whatever it might be, the one thing that we all have to do is live on the earth. So therefore, it, I mean, that's the impression I get. The, the, the drum that you're beating is a number of drums in this book and you're trying to get them to beat in the same rhythm, beat to the yeah. same time. But the, the right. one that is most banging is climate change. Well, look, I'm a writer and you're a writer and I believe in deadlines. Yeah, the deadline. <laughs> like, I mean, it usually takes me five years to get a book out. Yeah. I got this out in five months because I felt that 
sense of time, the, the, the ticking clock. Mm. Um, and so I think what climate change does is it puts us on a deadline for all of these other issues, right? Mm. So I don't think it's about saying, like, first we'll solve climate change and then we'll deal mm. with poverty, then we'll deal with inequality, then we'll deal with racism. What we need to do is we need to use, I think, the catalyst, the kick in the pants that is the fact that we need to get it together, like yesterday on climate change, mm. to come up with integrated solutions so that as we transform where we get our energy, how we move ourselves around, how we live in cities, how we share the resources of this planet, we simultaneously build a fairer economy and indeed begin to heal some of the wounds that date back to our countries. Okay, well, that's, that's I think, the yes that, that, that no is not enough suggests. Let's hear another extract as we move on to that. In this extract, you evaluate Trump versus Clinton. Trump thundered, all is hell. And Clinton answered, all is well. We just need a few minor tweaks here and there to make it more inclusive. Love Trump's hate was Clinton's final slogan. But love alone wasn't up to the job. It needed something stronger to help it out, something like justice. As a candidate, Hillary Clinton was in no position to speak to the mounting popular rage that defines our times. She had helped negotiate trade deals like the TPP that so many see as a threat. The first Clinton administration had deregulated the banks and derivatives market, laying the groundwork for the financial crash. She never came out against the move and had taken not insignificant speaking fees from those banks herself. So she tried to paper over the popular distress, with the results we know. In the absence of a progressive alternative, Trump had a free hand to connect with skeptical voters by saying, I feel your pain. You have been screwed. On the campaign trail, he directed some of the rage at the corporations who had pushed for these policies, but that's mostly forgotten now. Most of his wrath was saved for the various racist boogeymen he conjured up, the immigrants coming to rape you, the Muslims coming to blow you up, the black activists who don't respect our men in uniform, and the black president who messed everything up. The Brexit campaign spoke to the same toxic cocktail of real economic pain and genuinely eroded democracy combined with identity-based entitlement. And just as Hillary Clinton had no compelling answer to Trump's fake economic populism, the Remain campaign had no answer to Nigel Farage and UKIP when they said that people's lives were out of control and public services were underfunded, even as their proposed solution was poised to make things even worse. The crucial lesson of Brexit and of Trump's victory is that leaders who are seen as representing the failed neoliberal status quo are no match for the demagogues and neo-fascists. Only a bold and genuinely redistributive progressive agenda can offer real answers to inequality and the crises in democracy, while directing popular rage where it belongs, at those who have benefited so extravagantly from the auctioning off of public wealth, the polluting of land, air, and water, and the deregulation of the financial sphere. We need to remember this the next time we're asked to back a party or candidate in an election. In this destabilized era, status quo politicians often can't get the job done. On the other hand, the choice that may at first seem radical, maybe even a little risky, may well be the more pragmatic one in this volatile era. And from the perspective of our warming planet, it's worth remembering that radical political and economic change is our only hope of avoiding radical change to our physical world. Whatever happens, the next few years are going to be rocky. So before we focus on how to win the world we want and need, we first have to get ready for the next wave of crises coming from the Trump White House. 
shocks that could well reverberate the world over. One of the things I wanted to bring up with you, actually, is about your support or, uh, you know, conditional to some extent support of Bernie Sanders. The book is optimistic in terms of thinking that the left, the, the progressive parties, can unite due to the shocks that they're suffering. The shocks are, in fact, valuable because they can do that. Now, what I would say is that the left doesn't have a brilliant history of uniting. You know. <laughs> Which is why I'm not sure I would use the word optimism. Okay. I, I like the... Uh, well, you, the, you friend, find hope. Yeah, the... yeah. I have a friend who just says, I'm not an optimist, I'm a possibilist. Right. So I think it's possible. And I think the stakes have never been higher. And I think there is a fearsome responsibility now because through the Sanders campaign and through the Corbyn campaign and you know through the rise of new political parties like Podemos in Spain... We now know, actually, that bold, progressive ideas have the support of millions of people. I mean, I didn't grow up with that idea. I grew up with the idea that our ideas were totally tainted and mm. you know, we had to, like, package them and massage them and really not tell people what we really want and think because we will get shot down, yeah, you know. Yeah. And so Bernie Sanders ran this campaign calling for free college tuition, fully funded universal public health care. He called himself a democratic socialist, didn't walk that back in the United States of I know, America. Amazing. That know, was amazing. And called for a rapid transition to 100% renewable energy, a ban on fracking. Mm-hmm. And Corbyn's campaign shared a lot in common with Bernie Sanders' campaign. So you know, what I feel is a fearsome responsibility because we are in this moment when the neoliberal consensus, the sort of new labor and the whole project since Thatcher and Reagan of, of outsourcing more and more to the market, the sort of war on the commons, the public, that project is in crisis. But we're in a race against time, not just on climate, but because these very dangerous ideas are surging on the right mm. into that vacuum, mm. into mm. the vacuum created by mm. the failure of this economic project. And now we know that our ideas are a lot more popular. But as you say, you know, we're not great at coalition building. Mm. We're really great at arguing and stabbing really each other in the back. Yeah. yeah. So it's tough. It's it's really tough. But I'm going to look at something yeah. which looks optimistic or possibilist to me, which is it's a model of of something playing with a shell. So I'm going to assume that that is a positive symbol, but I don't know if it is. Tell me if it is. Well, that clip ended with getting ready for the shocks to come, which is the middle section of the book, which really comes back to what we were talking about earlier, that we haven't seen, I don't think we've seen the worst of the shocks under Trump because we haven't seen how he would exploit a major external shock, i.e. a shock not generated by himself and his tweets and, you know, whatever he did with Russia. Um, But, a financial crisis that becomes more likely the more you deregulate the financial market, which is what he's doing, and the or more you war. cut taxes or a war or blowback from his rampant Islamophobia in the mm. form of a terrorist attack. I mean, mm. it could all of this could happen, and indeed they're doing things to make it more likely, not because they want the shocks, but because they're just pretty casual and reckless about it. You do say, we haven't really talked about this, uh, but in the shock doctrine and in this book, your contention is that the forces of the establishment, for want of a better word, will exploit those kind of shocks in order to solidify their position economically. Yeah, I make the argument that this is what they have done over the past 50 years, is been very good at entering into those moments of shock and trauma to push forward extremely unpopular ideas. Mm. And I think we saw um, some hints of this after the Brexit vote, when Mm. people in this country woke up in this country that suddenly seemed very different and very unstable. Mm. And we started to hear these trial balloons around, well, maybe the solution is to turn 
the UK into even more of a tax haven for the rest of Europe and just kind of get rid of taxes altogether. So what this object is, is for me, it symbols kind of raising the alarm, which is what, mm. I'm, which is what I'm trying to do. I'm not trying to do it in an alarmist way, but I really do think that we need to be aware that there may be a bigger shock on the way. So what this is, is it was a gift that was given to me by Subcomandante Marcos when I was in uh, San Cristobal in Mexico. And it's a little figurine. It's a Zapatista little girl with a mask on, and she is blowing a conch, which is um, when Marcos gave it to me, he said that this is for raising the alarm. When there's trouble in the community, (laughs) you have to blow the conch. Um, So I have it on my mantle in my office. And I guess that's part of what I'm trying to do with that middle section of the book about getting ready for the shocks to come. Well, that relates to the the audiobook that we're going to into now, which is about the different ways in which you can react to a crisis. When I was in my late teens... My mother had a debilitating series of strokes, which turned out to have been caused by a brain tumor. The first stroke came as a complete shock. She was younger than I am now, physically active and professionally driven. One minute she was biking, the next she was in a neurological ICU, incapable of moving or of breathing without a respirator. Up until my mother's stroke, I had been a pretty difficult teenager. I was withdrawn from my parents, wild with my friends, serially dishonest. I did well at school for the most part, my one saving grace, but home life was strained or worse. In the instant that my mother's life changed forever, I did too. I discovered I knew how to be helpful, affectionate, imagine. I grew up overnight. After brain surgery, she gradually recovered some, though far from all, of her mobility. Watching her adapt to a different life as a disabled person I learned a lot about the power of humans to find new reserves of strength. It is true that people can regress during times of crisis. I've seen it many times. In a shocked state, with our understanding of the world badly shaken, a great many of us can become childlike and passive, overly trusting of people who are only too happy to abuse that trust. But I also know, from my own family's navigation of a shocking event, that there can be the inverse response as well. We can evolve and grow up in a crisis and set aside all kinds of bullshit fast. So that is possibilist, isn't it? Because you use your own family history, but obviously you relate that to wider shocks, wider crises, and your hope, your possibilist hope, is that the shock, although it can be exploited in bad ways, it can also be reacted to in unifying ways, in resistance ways. So there is the hope there. Absolutely. And I think shocks test us, um, crises test us, and it either goes one way or the other. You know, we don't just sort of do the same thing we were doing. Mm. Um, we tend to either kind of fall apart, regress, or find sources of strength and maturity that we didn't know we had. Um mm. And I think there are signs that people are responding to the Trump era in that way. There are also signs <laughs> of the opposite. Mm. But I wonder if, because there's a, a section in the book where you go, you're going to have to remind me what it's called, the the, the, the Standing, Standing Rock, Rock Sioux, the yeah. Dakota Access Pipeline. Yeah, so you go to the Standing Rock Sioux Pipeline, and it, it's very hopeful at some level, I think, mm-hmm. that section in the book. You know, almost utopian at some level, uh, that you go there and it's a pipeline for people underneath a lake that the Standing Rock Sioux, these Native mm-hmm. Americans, uh, held sacred, the lake they were going to be a, an oil pipeline. And also their uh, only source of drinking water. And their only source of drinking water. And a number of progressive people, activists, came to try and help that situation. And then Obama decided to cancel whatever permissions were granted to allow that to go ahead. So that seemed like a massive victory. And now, of course, Trump 
has gone back on it. So that's, I guess, the problem, isn't it, with the idea of, like, shock can create hope, but maybe not if the shock is absolutely damning, if the shock is absolutely a hammer blow. Well, I think that the Dakota Access fight is not over. They actually just got some good news because Trump did allow it to move forward. But the courts have now ruled that in doing that, he was violating the law and that they needed to do an environmental review. They needed to consult the tribe and they didn't. And there's also been a huge campaign to go after the banks that have funded the pipeline. And so it's possible that this project will still be stopped. But the part that I was really inspired by. I was inspired by a lot at Standing Rock, and it it was the largest meeting of Indigenous nations uh, in North America in decades. Yes, there were different non-Indigenous progressive groups who came there. There was a large delegation of veterans Mm. uh, who came to stand with them. But it was also just this incredible gathering of the tribes. And the part that I found really inspiring was that on the day that they did win this victory that, that that Trump then undid, the leaders there immediately focused on, you know, not just celebrating, they immediately were focusing on how do we turn this community into a beacon for the next economy. We want to get to 100% renewable energy. Mm. We want to keep the jobs and skills in our community. We want to bring hope and economic development and economic control in our community, a a justice-based transition off of fossil fuels. And the kind of thing that is what I mean when I say heal the wounds that Mm. date back to the founding of our country, that if we're going to get off fossil fuels, why wouldn't we do it in a way that addressed multiple overlapping crises at the same time? And they're still doing that. And uh, they've managed actually to raise a huge amount of money to bring renewable energy to their community. So they are still under threat from this pipeline, but they're trying to move forward. And it does embody the spirit of the no and the yes at the same time. Mm. No to the pipeline, but that's only the first phase. Mm. Um, The next phase is the world we actually want that will keep us safe. Because even if we win every defensive battle against Trump, if we successfully say no and we won't be successful on every front, Mm. we still end up exactly where we were when Trump came to power and that was very unsafe. So I, I br- one of the objects I brought is related mm. to Standing Rock, which yeah. is a blanket that is a Pendleton blanket, which is a famous company that makes a lot of blankets that are gifted by indigenous people in North America. And this one was gifted to me for my son, Toma, um, by a man named Arthur Manuel, who I quote in the book mm. as one of the authors of the Leap Manifesto. He's an old friend of mine yeah. and an amazing indigenous leader in Canada. And he died just before I started writing the book. It hangs over my son's bed. Okay. Um, so it sort of protects him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, um, it's, it's a night sky filled with stars and uh, teepees. Yeah. And, um, it's a community yeah. at yeah. night. Yeah. It's an, it's an indigenous community at night. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and the, and leap... the last time I saw Arthur oh. alive was at Standing Rock. So. Okay. And, yeah. the, and the leap, which you mentioned there, the book ends with the manifesto of the leap, which is something that you and a number of other people put together essentially on this idea that beyond no, there has to be an idea of what kind of community we do want if we don't want this. What I would say about it is I think everything about it is great. And then I would say, how do you make this happen, I guess? How do you make it happen without going through the normal processes? And it's those processes which tend to divert or distort those hopes for a different type of community. Historically, we've always seen that happen. 
Well, with The Leap, this was a a people's platform is the way we saw it, of just not waiting for political parties and political leaders to get their act together with a vision that was ambitious and bold and hopeful enough to truly address the overlapping crises of our time that we decided to do it and then hold politicians to it. And so it continues to, I think, continues to push the political class in, in my country to do better, although not quickly enough. And it's also being used at the local level where LEAP groups that have formed in many different communities, and now they're starting to run slates of candidates to take over their city council, to localize it, to Mm. to make it real. But ultimately, what I believe in is a really bottom-up process that does eventually express itself in a political project at the electoral level. But at the same time, that outside grassroots project has to stay engaged and continue to hold politicians to account to that vision because what we've seen again and again is that if they don't have that, they're just eaten alive. I mean, Mm. look at what happened in Greece with the election of Syriza. And there's often this feeling of, you know, when you finally... You know, kick out the whoever the right wing government is at the time and you get your guys in power. That's when you get to relax, you mm. know, and the opposite is true. That's when you're most needed to stay engaged and 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 push because they're going to come under such fierce resistance from mm. above. So they need to be pushed from below. So mm. that was the idea behind the leap. Um, and it's very much a work in progress. Mm. Let's hear a final extract from the audiobook of No Is Not Enough. A state of shock is produced when a story is ruptured when we have no idea what's going on. But in so many ways explored in these pages, Trump is not a rupture at all, but rather the culmination, the logical endpoint, of a great many dangerous stories our culture has been telling for a very long time. That greed is good. That the market rules. That money is what matters in life. That white men are better than the rest. That the natural world is there for us to pillage that the vulnerable deserve their fate and the 1% deserve their golden towers, that anything public or commonly held is sinister and not worth protecting, that we are surrounded by danger and should only look after our own, that there is no alternative to any of this. Given these stories are, for many of us, part of the very air we breathe, Trump really shouldn't come as a shock. A billionaire president who boasts he can grab women by their genitals while calling Mexicans rapists and jeering at the disabled is the logical expression of a culture that grants indecent levels of impunity to the ultra-rich, that is consumed with winner-take-all competition, and that is grounded in dominance-based logic at every level. We should have been expecting him. And indeed, many of those most directly touched by the underbelly of Western racism and misogyny have been expecting him for a long time. So maybe the emotion beneath what some have been calling shock is really, more accurately, horror. Specifically, the horror of recognition that we feel when we read effective dystopian fiction or watch good dystopian films. All stories of this genre take current trends and follow them to their obvious conclusion, and then use that conclusion to hold up a mirror and ask, Do you like what you see? Do you really want to continue down this road? These nightmare futures are horrifying precisely because they are not shocking. Not a break with our underlying stories, but their fulfillment. I have come to believe that we should see America's first nuclear-armed reality TV president in a similar fashion, a dystopian fiction come to life. Trump is a mirror, held up not only to the United States, but to the world. If we don't like what we see, and throngs of us clearly do not, then it is clear what we need to do.
where do you think you're going to go from here, Naomi? What is your next book? Or are you, at some level, are you waiting to see what happens before that for your next book? Because we are in a state of incredible flux at the moment. Yeah, yeah. I am more focused on organizing than I am on on Mm. what's the next writing project. And I feel like I hope that this book is helpful in terms of you know, bringing people to a point where we can sort of start that work. You know, I don't think this is the last word by any means, but I hope that it creates a little bit of groundwork. And, you know, there's lots of great books being written now. You know, no book can sum up all the things that, that created this this political moment. But yeah, for me, I sort of feel like it frees me up to not have to write for a little while and I want to organize. That's what I feel like doing in in this moment. I think it calls for face-to-face organizing. Naomi Klein, thank you very much. Thank you. Out now from Penguin Random House Audio. Every Woman, written and narrated by Jess Phillips, MP. Described as having all the laughs of Lena Dunham and Catelyn Moran with a backbone of real glinting anger. Every Woman is a manifesto on speaking up, speaking out and speaking the truth. Jess Phillips has been Labour MP for Birmingham Yardley since 2015. This is her first book. Any woman who dares to speak out has to prepare herself for the slow and subtle push for her voice to conform to the norm. In Parliament, there is a fair amount of shouting, ribbing and sledging. It is often presented as being very male behaviour, but many of the women on the green benches do it too. Nikki Morgan is a proper mutterer, and a Subri jolly well lets you know what she jolly well thinks. I myself am perhaps one of the loudest, but my voice is rarely alone. If I am getting aggravated or am heckling in a debate... I have noticed men from the opposition benches who shout and holler all they like, shushing me like I was a five-year-old on a car journey and they were about to miss some vital bit of a storyline on the archers. I am not a child. Do not shush me. These men have cottoned on to the fact that saying, calm down, dear, won't play well, so instead they have replaced it with the weaponry of a primary school teacher. On one sublime occasion, a minister on the front bench, a privileged bloke who has never lived on the benefit we were debating, wanted silence for his oh-so-uninformed view on what gets mothers back to work. He looked at me like I was a pram-faced commoner, fag in hand, screaming kids around my ankles, and shushed me. You're not my dad, I responded. Don't you dare shush me while the men shouting around me get no such treatment. There it is. Paternalistic shushing, as if the women in the commons are nothing more than infant children there to present an acceptable image. If anyone ever shushes you, my advice is to call it out. Ask the man in question, did you just shush me like a child? They will then be forced to verbalise their dislike of your opposition to their views and will fall apart almost instantly. A rallying cry for change by the woman J.K. Rowling has called a heroine. Every woman is a must-listen and is out now to download and own from Audible and iTunes.